maybe that UFO had developed a taste for airplanes after kidnapping the Martin Mariner rescue plane and the five Avenger torpedo bombers eight years earlier. This is all a test. Hello and welcome to the Uncover Up. I'm one of your co-hosts, Nathan Radke, and with me today is my esteemed colleague, Dr. Lee Kunla. Hi, Nathan. Hi, everyone. Now, Lee, if you had asked me when I was a kid how I thought I would die, you know, in typical kid conversation, I would have said that either I'll eventually be eaten by army ants, I would drown in quicksand, or I would disappear into the Bermuda Triangle. Because the the Bermuda Triangle in particular is a legend that loomed large in my childhood, possibly because my childhood was adjacent to the 1970s, and my parents had an awesome collection of discarded library books. And based almost entirely on that book collection, I'd assembled a pretty elaborate understanding of the Bermuda Triangle as I sat in my kitchen table in the early 1980s, reading and eating saltines. So that's what we're talking about today. We're going to talk about the Bermuda Triangle. Is that right? And I'm excited because this is another one of those, like the Loch Ness Monster, that was sort of my origin story. This is, you know, (laughs) me reading these books and getting really into this and wanting to investigate it. So I'm hoping that unlike when we did the Loch Ness Monster, this one does not cause me to lose a bit of my childhood. When I was researching this, I again had this sense that I can't believe we haven't talked about this yet. It's so fun to discover that there's still these huge, big, juicy conspiracies or unsolved mysteries out there that after doing this for a while, we still haven't even touched uh, a lot of them. So here's another one of the blockbuster ones. It's one of those areas where a lot of the critical reasoning strategies we employ actually prove to work out really well. It's about time. (laughs) All right. What, you know, I always like starting here. Like, what is it? What are we talking about? What is the Bermuda Triangle? Where did it come from? And what's it it doing? Okay, this is what I put together, again, as a little kid reading my my 1970s books. The Bermuda Triangle is a, a shadowy, mysterious area in the ocean in which electronics won't work, compasses go all screwy on you, there's giant waves, there's strange weather, they appear out of nowhere. And basically, if you go into the Bermuda Triangle, you were taking your life in your hands, just even venturing into it. It's an area of the Atlantic Ocean that spans from Puerto Rico to Bermuda to Miami and then back to Puerto Rico. Because it has those three points, it's a triangle. Uh, it's also about 500,000 square miles, so it's a, it's a very big triangle. And according to the legend, there are thousands of missing ships and boats and planes that that went into that area and never come back out again. Sometimes the craft will disappear without a trace. Uh, Sometimes a ship is found, but the people aboard are missing. Going back even as far as Christopher Columbus's journals in 1492, there's references to uh, fireball falling from the sky into the ocean and malfunctioning compasses. There's been a lot of explanations for this phenomenon over the years, so I'm going to go through them all, and I want you to pick your favorite before we get into it. Could be, there's a wormhole in time and space that transports planes and ships to far-off locations, maybe other dimensions. Uh, Strange weather events. Methane bubbles erupting from the ocean floor. Some kind of sea monster, like a giant squid, or or maybe even Cthulhu. Magnetic disturbances. 
alien kidnappers, or maybe the lost underwater civilization of Atlantis is hijacking our boats and planes to steal our technology. <laughs> so, of those, which is your favorite? Um, in terms of which I would hope would the truth, as opposed to my favorite in terms of what I actually think is is the right answer, I would hope it were Atlantis. I like the notion that there is a secret society living under the ocean. And um, in my rendition of it, they're not abducting people to steal their technology. They're abducting people to save them from the coming disaster of our Earth and kind of sequester them in this uh, technological utopia under, under the sea. Well, there you go, everybody. There is a frightening look into Lee's unconscious mind. <laughs> See, I would be cheering for uh, alien kidnappers or the wormhole in time and space because that would mean that all these missing people didn't die. They're still alive somewhere. Maybe having some exciting space adventure. Yeah, well, that's, I or, mean, to be fair, that's also in my fantasy. They're just in an underwater city somewhere. They're under the sea. Yeah. Uh, which, as I understand from the song, is uh, better where it's wetter. Uh, oh, I was thinking Octopus's Garden, but yeah, sure. Both excellent songs. <laughs> in 1950, there was a short article in the Miami Herald by E.V.W. Jones mentioning some of the planes and ships that had gone missing in the area of Bermuda, but he didn't yet reference this idea of the Bermuda Triangle. In 1952, George Sand published an article titled Sea Mystery at Our Back Door in Fate Magazine. In 1964, an author named Vincent Gaddis wrote an article in the pulp magazine Argosy titled The Deadly Bermuda Triangle, finally providing a name to the region. And in 1974, a book came out by author Charles Berlitz simply titled The Bermuda Triangle. And Berlitz, like Jones, Sand, and Gaddis before him, spent a great deal of time in his book discussing two of the strangest and most infamous disappearances in the Bermuda Triangle, the USS Cyclops and Flight 19. So I, I figured that we should examine those two events in particular to see if they can give us some kind of understanding of what's happening in that haunted section of ocean. Why don't we start with the classic myths as they're normally told, and then afterwards we'll do some of our patented uncover-up, uncover-upping. Why don't we do, uh, <laughs> why don't you cover the, the ghost story of the, of the USS, USS Cyclops? Cyclops. Okay. Um, before coming on today, I just really briefly typed into Google where are the most amount of shipwrecks in the world. And it's off the coast of Bermuda. So there is this sense in which this is a hotspot for these kinds of problems. And as Nathan also said, some of these are really quite mysterious. The big one is a ship called the USS Cyclops. And that's actually uh, both narratively and literally. The Cyclops was so named because it was an absolutely ginormous that's the technical term, a ginormous ship. Ginormous. Um, it was 540 feet long and 65 feet wide, and it was called the Cyclops because it was so big. I am not a ship guy at all, um, certainly not in the way uh, Nathan is a plane guy, but for those ship people out there, uh, this was a collier, and what that is is a coal transport ship. It was part of the Navy, but its main job was to transport coal and, to a lesser extent, other supplies to refuel uh, other ships and to, uh, to supply the Navy. When this story takes up, it is not actually transporting coal, and we're going to have to come back to that, because uh, it's transporting manganese ore, 
for purposes unknown to me, but surely they had some reason they needed it. So uh, the root of the Cyclops is it leaves uh, Rio de Janeiro on the 16th of February, 1918, en route to Baltimore. Uh, it makes an unscheduled stop in Barbados uh, and then sets out again for Baltimore, but is lost sometime around March 4th. Uh, and that's those are the bare bones of the story. The ship is lost, and so are the crew. And, of course, it takes place within this area known as the Bermuda Triangle. Uh, no trace of the ship is ever found or the crew on board. And I, it's, it's kind of strange. There have been, I've, I've discovered different numbers in terms of how many people were on board. Some claimed somewhere in the 200s, but the, the most accurate number I got was between 306 and 309 people on board. Uh, one crew list has it as 15 officers, 221 crewmen, and 57 passengers. And all are lost. So the question, of course, is what happened? I mean, it's World War One, so you'd think, well, clearly they could have just been torpedoed. And uh, that is one. that was one of the going theories at the time, that this was just uh, a, a, a ship lost uh, in combat. However, the Germans during but also after the war said that they had no uh, record of uh, engaging with the ship in combat. Uh, and in fact, it's listed as the largest non-combat uh, Navy accident uh, or Navy loss of life through non-combat. So maybe the Germans torpedoed it, but they're... They, the Germans said no, even after the war. Um, and they would have had no reason to lie about that. Yeah, that's right. But there's been a lot of time that's passed since um, March 4th, 1918. So if Germany had any records, I don't see why they would be holding them back, you know, decades after the Second World War ends. Germany and the United States are allies. Okay, but that was a going theory, you know, it just got torpedoed. Another one was that uh, it was caught up in a storm and, you know, capsized, maybe, something awful. And, of course, then there's there's the giant squid uh, option, which is part of also just the Bermuda Triangle legend. Like, when we talk about what's, what's making ships disappear in the Bermuda Triangle, the giant squid, giant octopus, the kraken, um, these kinds of uh, options present themselves. I'm into but, that one. Yeah, you know, I, I, I don't know when it always oh, in the cryptids, right? Where we discover, where we started talking about, they were just. I've become quite fascinated with the kraken after that. Those are the going theories, and then of course there's the Bermuda Triangle theory. And as Nathan said, this is one of the legends that really gives some legs to this story. Where you're like, look, there's a sh- there's a boat. The Germans didn't torpedo it. There was no storm that people knew about. It uh, just disappeared. And if if this were a one-off, it would be an interesting mystery. But of course, this is within that uh, fabled area where there are, this is one representative case of maybe hundreds, certainly dozens of stories about ships just suddenly disappearing in this area. And so people have then used this as part of a 
lure in terms of bringing people into this mystery, what's really going on here. And of course, you know, it's a ghost ship kind of scary scenario. That's that's the bare bones of the story. Now, in terms of what I think actually happened, I'm not I'm not sure we're there yet. So I'll just maybe no, leave we'll get, it right we'll now. We'll get to that after. Yeah, I'll leave it as a mystery because it, it, it remained. It has remained a mystery. I think there are some interesting explanations, but I, I'm certainly unclear as to which of them I believe. All right. So there's the first one, and now, everyone, gather around. I'm not actually <laughs> sure how you gather around a podcast, but just do it. Because I'm going to tell you the chilling legend of the disappearance of Flight 19. It was a beautiful day on the afternoon of December 5th, 1945. The war was over and the sun was shining down on a beautiful glassy ocean off of the coast of the Navy base at Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Five TBF Avenger torpedo bombers, a sturdy and reliable airplane, took off on a routine flight. Led by the experienced Lieutenant Charles Taylor, the 14 men flew east towards the Bahamas. There should have been 15 men on board, since each Avenger had a crew of three, but one of the men had refused to go on the flight. Perhaps he had had a premonition of what was about to happen. A few hours into the flight, the control tower received a frantic message from Taylor. Control tower, this is an emergency. We seem to be off course. We cannot see land. Repeat, we cannot see land. The control tower told the pilots to fly west, but according to Taylor... We don't know which way is west. Everything is wrong, strange. We can't be sure of any direction. Even the ocean doesn't look as it should. At that time of day, finding west should have been easy, like just follow the sun in the sky. But something was preventing the pilots of Flight 19 from even doing that. The tower told the pilots that they would scramble rescue planes to go find them, but Taylor told the tower not to send anyone after them. Then there was radio silence. Alarmed, the tower sent a Martin Mariner flying boat rescue plane after Flight 19, but shortly after takeoff, the Mariner flying boat also stopped responding to the control tower's radio transmissions. The Mariner simply disappeared into the sky, and neither the plane nor the 13 crew members on board were ever seen or heard from again. And neither were the five Avenger torpedo bombers or the 14 men on board. If they had landed on on the calm ocean, they should have had enough time to get to their emergency rafts before the plane sank. If they had crashed, there should have been oil slicks and debris on the water's surface. But instead, it was as if the sky simply swallowed them up. A massive search was launched, but to no avail. After an investigation, an officer from the Naval Board of Inquiry told the press, They vanished as if they'd flown to Mars. We don't know what the hell's going on out there. But one thing was certain, the Bermuda Triangle had claimed six more planes and 27 more human lives. However, we did get a clue as to what might have happened to them, but the clue didn't come out of the Bermuda Triangle. The Bermuda Triangle doesn't give up its clues easily. Instead, it was something that happened over Lake Superior, 1,700 miles north of the Bermuda Triangle. An F-89 Scorpion interceptor was scrambled from Kinross Air Force Base in 1953 and sent after a UFO. The ground radar operator watched his screen as the blip from the F-89 approached the UFO, then the two blips merged, then the F-89 vanished from the radar screen. This event led uh, Major Donald Kehoe to come to a starting conclusion in his 1957 book, The Flying Saucer Conspiracy, that the UFO had swallowed the F-89, possibly to take it away to study it. And maybe that UFO had developed a taste for airplanes after kidnapping the Martin Mariner rescue plane, 
and the five Avenger torpedo bombers eight years earlier. Lee, have you ever seen Close Encounters of the Third Kind? You know what? I haven't. And I've, it's actually, I, I'm, it's on my uh, watch list because it's so important <laughs> to watch if you're into aliens and conspiracies. So it's on my watch list. Yeah, you've got to watch it, particularly, I'm not going to spoil the ending, even though it's like a 50-year-old movie at this point, but it opens with the discovery of five Avenger planes from Flight 19 being found out in the middle of an Arizona desert. Cool. So now we've got it set up. We've told two spooky campfire-style ghost stories, one about the, the haunted ghost ship that went missing and one about the planes being swallowed into the sky. Well, mine was more of a military report. Yours was a nice campfire story. Mine's just like, sir, there was a ship, it went missing. We're not sure why. Yeah, for me, I had the full flashlight under the face routine going. (laughs) All right, so now that we've set it up, let's now knock it down. What do you think actually happened to the USS Cyclops? Well... I'm not sure, because there's a bunch of uh, details I left out of this story that, when you include it, um, provide a couple of different possibilities for what could have happened. So the first is that the ship was loaded with manganese ore, which is uh, very heavy, especially compared to coal. There's a line on the side of, a, of one of these, you know, you, you will have seen them if you're close to water, Um, There's a line on the side of these big transport ships. And, of course, I should have looked up the name now, but um, it's an important line that shows whether the ship is overloaded or not. And if that line is below water, the ship is overloaded, and it's no longer uh, seaworthy. It's dangerous to take out to sea. The manganese on this ship seems to have pushed the ship below where it should have been Uh, allowed to be. Uh, That is to say, we made the ship too heavy. And um, if there now had been a storm, and uh, in, in learning about the Bermuda Triangle, one of the things that I have discovered is just how quickly these storms can emerge, or how there can be these freak weather events. One poor guy I read about uh, went out on an absolutely clear day from the coast of Florida to go f- fishing. He it, it was quite far away, so it takes him a couple of hours to get there, but it's a beautiful clear day out. He goes to sleep, and while he's sleeping, something called a rogue wave comes, picks up his boat, capsizes it, and he dies. And that, you know, can happen just on a clear day. So there are weird weather anomalies that that take place out in that area of the ocean and if you have an overloaded ship and there's a bad weather event that's something that might explain what happened now another piece of the story i didn't touch on was the captain who uh was a peculiar fellow he was of German descent, which during World War I mattered, of course, because uh, when I say German descent, like he was born in Germany to German parents and immigrated to the United States. His first language was German. So there was some question about whether he might not have been a traitor slash saboteur, something like that. But also there was a lot of reports that his crew did not like him. And there may have been an attempted mutiny, uh, which is recorded uh, at the stopover in Barbados, where 
that, that stopover was to in part check whether the ship was in fact overloaded and still safe to um, take out to sea. And at that stopover, there was a, a report about a mutiny in which one of the mutineers was executed. And the question is uh, whether there might not have been a second attempt at a mutiny on the longer voyage. It was actually in researching Flight 19 that I came across something really interesting, and it was by a flight crash site investigator. And he says, the things that usually bring airplanes down, it's not one thing that goes wrong. It's a number of things that go wrong to the point where the pilot is overwhelmed and can no longer rescue the situation. And I wonder if that isn't also true of some of these large ship disasters, that if the boat were overloaded and that were all, it might have been fine. If there was a, a bad relationship between crew and captain, that might have been doable. But if two or more of these factors were present at the same time, I think that could easily explain how this situation became overwhelming and got out of control. And I, the thing is, I'm not sure which of the two or maybe more, were at play. I mean, if you have a mutiny, a storm, and an overloaded ship, I would be surprised if you made it at all. But even two of those factors, I think, are enough to explain why this ship was lost. Now, if it did just sink, why can't it be found? Um, it should be easily found. But that's not necessarily true. There are some extremely deep patches in that triangle where uh, a reconnaissance... Uh, would be next to impossible. Really, it's really hard to get at some of these ships. They're so deep uh, in the ocean. And if it had been something else, like if this ship had been maybe torpedoed, say, by a rogue torpedo, or maybe friendly fire, or something, you know, that wasn't directly involving the Germans, or the Germans don't have records of it, but let's say there was a torpedo strike. Another interesting tidbit that I discovered is how debris disperses in water and how quickly a rather coherent debris field can be scattered across massive, massive areas such that there's really zero hope of ever finding anything like it. So, to me, the existence of these kind of plausible factors that don't require a supernatural explanation or even something quite new like the existence of methane bubbles or hexagonal clouds or whatever leads me to, to suspect that this is probably, it was probably as a result of one of those more mundane explanations. Although, I can't tell you which one I'm more comfortable with. And one of the things that I've noticed in, in doing this work in conspiracies is that one of the retorts you get when you try and debunk stuff is somebody will come up with a specific historical instance and say, well, how do you explain this thing? And the thing is, I don't know. Like, there's a lot of one-off events. I just don't have enough information to explain. But here's what we can do. If we really have evidence to suggest that something out of the ordinary and as yet unexplained is happening in the Bermuda Triangle, we can send scientists with scientific methods and scientific equipment out there and test it and find out. And so I don't know if I always need to be able to explain one weird one-off historical events, especially when 
the the reasonable explanations do exist. I mean, I can't tell you 100% that it wasn't aliens, but I lean towards something like the ship was overloaded and there was either a storm or a mutiny or both. This sounds as though you are employing Occam's razor here. Yeah, that's right. Um, Occam's razor being, well, there's a lot of different ways of rendering it, but I think you know, the the simplest explanation, which requires the least amount of, pre- um, not prepositions, what is the technical argumentative term I'm looking for? Suppositions. That requires least amount of suppositions. The argument that requires least amount of suppositions is probably the right one. Right. So in the case of the USS Cyclops, you can come up with an explanation that it would explain its sinking that involves the way the ship was loaded and the way the ship was crewed. It doesn't need to involve Atlantis. So we can we can figure this out and have an explanation that doesn't need Atlantis. So then if we have another explanation that does require Atlantis, there's a lot more suppositions there because we don't have evidence of, of Atlantis existing. And so Occam's razor, although it isn't flawless, it is sort of a way of, of getting through and separating different explanations for things and saying, well, this one we can explain using what we already know to be true. And this one requires us to make some giant leaps. And if you have two explanations and one requires giant leaps and the other doesn't, the one that doesn't is more likely to be true. And so in this case, you you have sort of very mundane, ordinary reasons why a ship can go completely missing, not just in the Bermuda Triangle, but anywhere in an ocean. Yeah, that's right. Now, I, I think, though, the reason that our kind of debunking is not very satisfactory in this kind of uh, scenario or with this kind of story is that the USS Cyclops is one of is supposed to represent a number of events. So just even if I can come up with or you and I come up with a pretty mundane explanation for it, it doesn't really address the fact that yes, but what about all the other mysterious ships that that have gone? And since there are all these other mysterious ships or ship sinkings or disappearances, then. How do we know that our mundane explanation for this event is correct? Yeah, well, I mean, which is a good a good question. At the same time, ships sink. Uh, do you know how many <laughs> ships have sunk in Lake Erie? Lake Erie is a lot smaller than the Bermuda Triangle. Lake Erie is, a, is one of the Great Lakes. It's tiny compared to the Bermuda Triangle. Do you know how many ships have sunk in Lake Erie? How many ships have sunk in Lake Erie? Yeah. Uh, if you're going to take a guess and, and play like the worst game show ever. All right. I would say less than 200. 2,000. There are 2,000 shipwrecks Whoa. in Lake Erie. So cool. like, ships, ships sink. I know Lee is very worried about air travel, but you should be also a little worried about water travel, too. Oh, no, 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 no. I am afraid of air travel. I, I ra- my rational brain realizes that it is the safest way to move about. Um, uh, but I am, I am also not entirely comfortable with water travel. The difference being that I can at least imagine surviving the initial disaster, which, I, which is always the problem with the air thing, is this like, if something goes wrong, I can't imagine a way that that's going to work out for me, whereas I still have the life vest or the life raft. Or, if they, if right. there were you parachutes know, You know how to swim. Yeah. But you don't know how to fly. Exactly. If there were parachutes and airplanes, I would feel more comfortable. Now, of course, there were parachutes in the Avengers mm. of Flight 19. I, this now, is, that's a segue. That is, I got to admit, what, that story 
is makes me so claustrophobic. There's so much I don't like about that story. It combines three of my least favorite things in the world, which is airplane travel, being lost, and obeying authority. And I just, I, the whole time as I was learning about Flight 19, I was like, guys, get, get, go, the, go the other way. Get, stop this. I, and and this, it just kept getting worse and worse, and every decision was just compounding the initial errors. And, I mean, you know what? It, like, nobody likes being lost, right? It's just, there's just this awful feeling that I find associated with being lost. And that's like when I'm walking around, like, as opposed to being over the ocean, yeah, I, I agree. Researching this on uh, Flight 19, on the one hand, I was sort of pleased with how good the records are for it. Mm. On the other hand, like you say, there is a sort of emotional aspect to it, that it's horrifying to imagine what these guys were going through. And uh, in a way, well, wh- why don't I explain what actually happened to Flight 19? Yeah, what, what actually happened? Or what is your theory as to what happened? And, and I'm pretty confident in this one. Okay. The the TBF Avenger was a tubby, barrel-shaped World War II-era torpedo bomber. It was designed to fly off of aircraft carriers. It was a, a pretty rugged plane, but it had a very heavy radial engine in the nose. It wasn't designed for water landings. On December 5th, 1945, there was a training exercise planned in which five Avengers, uh, led by the experienced flight instructor Lieutenant Charles Taylor in Avenger number FT-28, we're going to fly east over the ocean from the base in Fort Lauderdale to do some practice bombing runs at a place called Hen and Chicken Shoals. Then they were going to continue flying east for another 77 miles to the Barry Islands. Then they were going to turn north and fly 84 miles, at which point they would fly over Grand Bahamas Islands. Then they would turn back west and fly 140 miles back to base in Fort Lauderdale. Now, that sounds pretty simple, but you have to remember this was in an age before satellite navigation or GPS. The whole thing was done by keeping track of speed and time. Basically, you would say, well, we flew in this direction for this many minutes, which means that we must be here on the map. There aren't many reference points or signposts out in the open ocean, particularly as the the planes would only be flying at about a few thousand feet. And Taylor was an experienced pilot, but he hadn't been at the Fort Lauderdale base for very long. He had been flying out of Miami, and instead of going east, he had been going south over the Florida Keys. The planes of Flight 19 took off at 2.10, and we know from the radio transmissions between the planes that were picked up by the control tower that the bombing practice was completed by 3 o'clock. At that point, they should have continued east towards the Barry Islands, then turned north once they got to the Barry Islands. Then they would fly over open ocean for a while until they came across the Grand Bahamas Islands. Then they would head west back to Fort Lauderdale. Basically, they were supposed to fly in a triangle within the Bermuda Triangle. But at 3.40, another flight instructor named Lieutenant Robert Cox was flying his Avenger over Fort Lauderdale when he picked up a transmission on the radio frequency used by training flights. A pilot was calling another pilot in his flight and saying that they had gotten lost after making their last turn. Lieutenant Cox then called the Fort Lauderdale control tower to report that a training flight had gotten lost. Then he called the pilot that he heard. The lost pilot identified himself as Avenger number MT-28 and said... Both my compasses are out, and I'm trying to find Fort Lauderdale, Florida. I'm over land, but it's broken. I'm sure I'm in the Keys, but I don't know how far down, and I don't know how to get to Fort Lauderdale. Lieutenant Cox replied that if the lost pilot was in the Florida Keys, he should put the sun on his port or left wing and fly north. Cox also said that he would fly south and meet up with the lost pilots to guide them back to base. The lost pilot replied, I know where I am now. 
I'm at 2,800 feet. Don't come after me. Now, this is an important exchange because that phrase, don't come after me, is often mentioned in the legend of Flight 19. But in the context that something terrible or weird was happening and Lieutenant Taylor didn't want anyone else to be trapped like he was. But when you put the phrase in context, Taylor was actually just saying, wait, I'm fine now. You don't need to come find me. But Lieutenant Cox notified the base of the situation, and the base asked him if it was MT-28, like the pilot had said, or FT-28 he was talking to, because MT-28 would be an Avenger out of the Miami base, whereas FT-28 would be an Avenger out of Fort Lauderdale. Cox asked the lost pilot, who confirmed that he was, in fact, FT-28, a Fort Lauderdale torpedo bomber, not MT-28. And that means two things. One, that it was Lieutenant Taylor and Flight 19 that Cox was talking to. And also, and maybe more importantly, that Taylor had gotten confused over his flight number since he had spent so much more time flying out of Miami than Fort Lauderdale. So Lieutenant Cox starts flying south by southwest to meet up with Flight 19 since Lieutenant Taylor had said he thought they were in the Florida Keys. But as Lieutenant Cox flew further south, the radio reception from Taylor got worse rather than better. That means that Flight 19 wasn't southwest of the base in the Keys, they were northeast of the base. They weren't in the Keys, they were probably north of the Bahamas, in a series of tiny islands called Walker Cay, which is a strip of small islands that looks like the Florida Keys. At this point, Lieutenant Cox had gotten too far away from Flight 19 to communicate with them, but the control tower at Port Everglades got a hold of Flight 19. The control tower instructed Lieutenant Taylor to fly due west in order to reach the Florida coast, then they could fly south along the coast to the base. However, Lieutenant Taylor replied, We are heading 30 degrees for 45 minutes, then we will fly north to make sure that we are not over the Gulf of Mexico. If Flight 19 had been southwest of the base in the Gulf of Mexico, like Lieutenant Taylor thought, then as they flew north they would have gotten closer to the Fort Lauderdale control tower, and the radio transmission signal would have gotten stronger. Instead, it grew weaker, to the point that the tower could faintly hear radio communications between the planes of Flight 19, but struggled to send them any more messages. At 5 o'clock, Flight 19 had been flying around for a while. They were going to start running out of gas. The tower heard an unidentified pilot of Flight 19 radio, Damn it, if we would just fly west, we could get home. But Lieutenant Taylor was convinced that they needed to fly north and east, because he thought they were in the Keys still. And at 5.07, the control tower heard Taylor order his pilots to fly due east. Now, often in these podcasts, there's like one part where my heart breaks. And in this podcast, it's that moment when the, the pilot in Flight 19 says, Damn it, we could just go west. We could just go home. Because he was right. And this is why, Lee, you were saying that part of this story that you find so difficult to deal with is this idea of authority. Because, of course, in the military, you have to follow the authority, even as in this case, when the authority is completely wrong. So those pilots would have been flying further away from home. They would have known they were flying further away from home, but they had to follow the chain of command. Yeah, um, there's a few pieces of this story I just want to highlight and maybe add one or two pieces you hadn't mentioned yet. One is that just... I know you said it, but it was something that I had heard a bunch of times before it sunk in, that this really was a training flight. So there were five of them. One was the leader. The leader has something on the order of two and a half thousand flight hours, whereas each of the other members of the crew have only around 300 flight hours. The difference in 
presumed skill level and presumed authority. It's not just, I think, here in the title. It's that, no, no, I'm learning to fly. That guy is the expert. So I feel like even if I was pretty sure what we were doing was wrong, I might can still understand why I might not break protocol. I mean, I wonder if they really believe that their life was completely at stake if if somebody it doesn't say like, okay, I don't really care if I get court-martialed. Uh, I'm going to just break off. So it really was a training flight where the one person in charge was expected to know what they were doing and call the shots. Now, yeah. the other thing that did come through your story but was something that I felt... I was getting quite uncomfortable as I was reading and learning about it, was that, so there was this one flight crew member who who begged off the mission, who didn't end up going, but it was also the flight leader who showed up late that day and asked not to, to go up. Now, he didn't give a clear reason as to why. I'm wondering to what extent issues around mental health are things that can be said publicly, you know, if, 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 there's something going on with this person and he knows it and he says look i really i can't fly today but his commander says no you're you are flying you this is the mission's already late and you're going to get into the plane and fly so he, the pilot himself had doubts about his ability that day and then he goes up and he gets confused now the other team members as nathan points out seem to have some clarity in the situation and and do suggest going west, which which you would hit land if you were out on the ocean and you went west from there, you would hit land. It might not be where you started, but at least it would give you an opportunity to land on something um, that's not the ocean um, and maybe even get guided back. There were other pieces here. Why, why didn't he accept help? Why was he getting confused? So to me, I wondered, as I was learning about this, whether there wasn't something else happening to the pilot that increased his confusion in this situation. Um, well, I mean, we know from the from the transmissions that he was even getting his own flight number wrong. Yeah. He was saying that he was MT-28 when he was actually FT-28. And the reason that that's so important is because MT-28 would have been Miami flying south over the Keys. Mm-hmm. FT-28 would have been Fort Lauderdale flying east over the Bahamas. Mm. And he was so much more familiar with the Keys. And so when he saw what he saw out of his window, it wasn't that his compass was failing. It wasn't that they couldn't see the sun. It's that he was wrong about where they were. And because yeah. he was the leader, everyone else had to follow along with him. There seem to be commonalities across these uh, disappearances. One is that the compass starts going haywire from the time of... So Nathan had earlier mentioned um, Christopher Columbus, uh, and he recorded that um, his compasses were out of whack when they were going through this region. Then there's all the ghost ships and stuff like that. And now the compass going out of whack is is um, a tell tail Bermuda Triangle sign in a way. You know you're in a Bermuda Triangle story when the disappearance is preceded by the compass sort of spinning out of whack and, and you losing control. Is there something to this? I mean, well, I mean are we just there, these there boring sort of nationalists? Uh, but there is something to compasses being funny in the Bermuda Triangle, but it doesn't have anything to do with anything supernatural. It has to do with the fact that magnetic north and true north 
are two different things. They're pretty close, but a compass doesn't point to true north. A compass will point to magnetic north. And because of where magnetic north is on the globe, the Bermuda area is one of those areas in which true north and magnetic north line up. But this is something that's been well established and certainly something by 1945 that would have been taken into account when you were using a compass to travel through the area. But ultimately, even though in the legend, the compass figures really prominently in this story, when you're reading the actual transcript of the flight communications, like they know which way they're going. They know they're going north and east. The problem isn't they don't know which way they're going. The problem is that they don't know where they are or that Taylor is convinced that they are somewhere where they actually aren't. And I'm just realizing now that we've left them still flying up in the air at this point. Oh, yeah, because they they don't do that forever. Yeah. So it's 5.07. The control tower hears Taylor order the pilots to fly due east, which takes them further away from Florida, tragically. Uh, at 5.15, Taylor radios that he's changed his mind, and now he's ordering his planes to fly due west again. And I think this speaks to kind of a lot of the confusion and disorientation that this pilot was going through at this at this moment, which is totally understandable, because it's also getting dark at this point, and his planes are running out of fuel. And this is when the tower hears Lieutenant Taylor radio to his pilots, When the first man gets down to 10 gallons of gas, we will all land on the water together. By 6 o'clock, the tower's high-frequency direction-finding equipment actually had a fix on the planes using their radio communications. And they weren't in the Florida Keys or in the Gulf of Mexico like Lieutenant Taylor had assumed. They were, in fact, on the other side of the Florida Peninsula, out in the Atlantic Ocean north of the Bahamas. But by then, two-way communications was impossible because of radio interference. By 6.45, the control tower could no longer hear Flight 19. And by 8 o'clock, they had almost certainly run out of fuel and crash-landed in the Atlantic Ocean. The sun had set over two hours earlier, and the weather was bad. The seas were white-capping, which means that the waves were high enough to be tipping over. Even if the Avengers had set down gently on the ocean, they would sink in about 90 seconds. And with tall waves, setting down gently would have been almost an impossibility. Uh, They did send a Martin Mariner flying boat rescue plane. Uh, At about 7.30, one had taken off to look for Flight 19. The Mariner was a large twin-engine plane designed to take off and land on water. They were supposed to call base to report at 8.30, but they never did. When the base tried to contact them, there was no, there was no reply. However, at 7.50, a mid-air explosion was observed by sailors on the tanker ship SS Gaines Mills over the part of the ocean where the Mariner rescue plane would have been. The captain of the ship reported that the sea was littered with an oil slick and debris from an aircraft, but that the sea was too rough to recover any of it. At this point, you might be thinking, hey, isn't that sort of a ridiculous coincidence that the rescue plane sent out to save Flight 19 just happened to explode? Don't you find that a bit suspicious? Who the h- do you guys think you are anyway? <laughs> yeah, I admit, is, I did find it a bit odd. It is weird. This fl- the Flight 19 goes out, they get disoriented, and then they disappear, and then immediately afterwards, a rescue plane, and really they should know what they're doing, right? I mean, they're a rescue plane, this is what they do, uh, goes out, and then they disappear too. That's a pretty weird coincidence. And if we've learned anything in studying conspiracy theories, is that as human beings, we hate coincidences. Mm. And, and I found this to be a weird coincidence. I think this is the part of the story that makes it more famous. I think if we had just yeah. had a training flight of Avengers get lost and crash into the ocean, maybe that doesn't become a Bermuda Triangle story. But then the rescue plane disappears too? Yeah. 
But I, I only found it odd until I did some research into the safety history of the of the Martin Mariner flying boat, because. On January 21st, 1944, a Mariner exploded in midair for undetermined reasons shortly after takeoff. On July 16th, 1944, a Mariner exploded in midair for undetermined reasons shortly after takeoff. On June 21st, 1944, a Mariner crashed into the ocean under unclear circumstances. On July 15th, 1944, a Mariner crashed into the ocean after suffering an engine failure. On August 20th, 1944, a Mariner lost control and crashed into the ocean for unexplained reasons. Because, unfortunately, a Martin Mariner exploding and crashing into the ocean is, sadly, one of the least mysterious aspects of this entire situation. Hmm. Ultimately, when you read the Flight 19 transcripts, I don't think you're left with a mystery. The planes didn't disappear. The five Avengers ran out of gas and crash-landed in the ocean, and the Mariner exploded in midair. There's a tragedy here, and there's a terrible loss of life here, but there's nothing that requires a supernatural explanation. Uh, weirdly, uh, an Avenger actually crashed into the ocean a couple weeks ago. Oh, wow. Yeah, a World War II torpedo bomber Avenger crashed into the ocean a couple weeks ago after an air show. And we have footage of it. And you can see it's it's like a perfect situation for it to crash land because it's right by the shore. The sea is very calm. And the pilot does an excellent job of, of landing this plane in the water. But it starts to sink almost immediately. Hmm. Now, in that case, everybody was fine. Nobody was hurt because he was right by the shore. But if that had happened to him at the ocean, that plane is gone in seconds. And the ocean is huge. Losing something in the ocean isn't unusual. Losing something in the ocean is the nature of the ocean, just because of its sheer scope and size. And I think as humans, we have a hard time with that. We have a hard time with something just being gone. We have a hard time realizing how tiny and insignificant we are and how massive the world is. And so, in a weird way, I feel like a lot of these Bermuda Triangle legends are almost kind of a way for us to try to cope with that, for us to cope with the fact that it's like, you know what? You can get lost out in the ocean, and you will just never be found. Yeah. Well, and I think that's why both of our fantasy scenarios have all of those people survive and living a happy alternative life somewhere maybe under the ocean or on an alien planet or in a wormhole at the other end of space whatever i think the other aspect of human nature or human psychology that i think is applicable to helping us understand this story is whether there is any there there at all and i think a lot of the theories generated come out from the assumption that something is happening there. And if you go into a situation assuming that something has happened that you need to explain, you will start to try and come up with theories to explain it. I think both of our stories as individual instances are not that unusual if you look at what happens in the ocean. People who fly airplanes get lost, even when they're... Um, you know, heads of training routines. Military ships sink. There's mutinies. I mean, you know, stuff happens, uh, stuff especially, happens. At, especially at sea. And we don't pay much attention to any other place, except here we go in thinking that there is some need to explain it. If it happens here, if just a regular old event, as tragic as it is for the people involved and their families. But if statistically a, a just a thing happens here, 
it re- seems to require a different explanation than if it were to happen anywhere else on the planet. And I think that's interesting, too, is that we're primed to feel the need to explain something. And it was interesting in some of these documentaries I watched, nobody ever asked whether there was any need to explain. I mean, nobody ever began the inquiry with, are there more ships that disappear here in this vast triangle? I did say earlier in the podcast that off the shores of the Bahamas, it's one of the most popular places to have a have a ship sink. But that the Bermuda Triangle is much more than just the coast of the Bahamas. And there's a reason for uh, the coast of the Bahamas being problematic, and it's because of a lot of stuff that's quite beyond my ken, but things like reefs that aren't difficult to spot and extremely deep places in the ocean um, abutting by not very deep places and the weird currents that happen, plus the storms and the fact that most boating accidents happen for one of two reasons. Either the people don't know what they're doing or there's a mechanical failure. And when you're in the Bahamas, there's a lot of, you know, pleasure boaters out there who get hammered and screw up. And, you know, that counts as a shipwreck. So I found that interesting just that we we enter into this as already feeling that we need to explain these things in a way we don't feel the need to explain other similar events. Yeah. It's like uh, there was a librarian in the 1970s when all these books started to come out to talk about the mystery of the Bermuda Triangle. And uh, this librarian was named Lawrence David uh, Kusha. And he did exactly as you described. He's like, wait, what if there isn't a reason all of these things crashed? And so he went through and he looked at them all individually and he said, well, there are individual reasons why all of these planes went missing or all of these boats went missing. He said, it's as if you looked at all of the car crashes in a city and said, what's the reason behind all of these car crashes? And of course, the explanation is, no, there's a hundred reasons behind a hundred car crashes. Yeah. And if we go to other cities, we'll see car crashes there too. So now, though, let's, that's, I like that example, let's now draw a triangle around some area uh, where there might be a statistical anomaly of slightly more car crashes, right? And now then, let's pick out, out of that huge sample that we're going to get, because cars are incredibly dangerous to drive or to be around at all. So there's a lot of car crashes and a lot of fatalities that happen. Let's take 1,000, 2,000, 10,000, and see, are there some that are hard to explain? You know, are there some where it's like, no, alcohol wasn't involved, and no, the person didn't fall asleep, and oh, their car had just been at the mechanic, and so the obvious reasons don't... I'm sure I could start telling a story about a certain area outside of, say, Chicago. You know, I'll make a triangle um, with a couple of cities, of which uh, Chicago, Illinois is one point, and say there's something weird here, and it probably has to do with this alien crash landing that happened, you know, and suddenly now the myth of the Chicago Triangle is born, and, you know, people are worried about driving in that area. To, to, to pick up on Nathan's point about, like, you know, there are good reasons maybe why a lot of these ships uh, and planes went down, Another thing I like to do is ask whether anybody's got skin in the game. Uh, what I mean by that, is there anybody who would lose money if, if the Bermuda Triangle uh, was a thing? And there are 
there are groups that would lose a huge amount of money if the Bermuda Triangle was a thing, and that is international shipping companies, airline travel companies, uh, cruise ships, and insurance companies. And they've got money to lose. And they're going to take this very seriously. You know, I've, I've, I've talked about my distrust and dislike of airplane travel, but the one thing that keeps me flying is the, the realization that an airline disaster is a public relations disaster for that airline, and it loses them money. And it is my reliance on their greed that keeps me feeling somewhat more comfortable than I otherwise would in an airplane. And it's the same thing for, for, for international shipping or, or, or airline travel or cruises. Cruises go through the Bermuda Triangle all the time. In fact, it's now a destination point for some cruises. You can actually take a cruise to the Bermuda Triangle and quote-unquote see it, which is just ocean, so, you know. Are there more cruise ships disappearing? Are there more international uh, uh, shipping containers going missing? Are there more international airlines going missing? And the answer is a resounding no. In fact, you can right now, if you're listening to this podcast, you can right now go on to the um, live flight, what is the correct term for this, the, the flight data, you know, where you can see international flights uh, sort of in real time. I mean, they don't give you the exact, exact location, but close enough. And you can zone in on the Bermuda Triangle, and there are flights going over it right now. And nothing's happening. So this is also, like, just to flip the script a little bit, this is also why one of the things that convinced me that climate change is probably a real thing, is that insurance companies are taking it very, very seriously. And they're betting a lot of their resources on the fact that the Bermuda Triangle does not exist, but climate change does. I think that's a great way to test. Does Again, like Occam's razor, doesn't always work. But it's a great way to kind of gauge how serious to take something like this. Are the insurance companies taking it, taking it seriously? Yeah, the insurance adjusters at Lloyd's of London don't have a premium that they add if you're going through the Bermuda Triangle, because exactly. statistically, the Bermuda Triangle isn't any more dangerous than any other place. Right, like most yeah. of your most of your fatal accidents happen either in the bathroom, in the kitchen, or on your way to and from work in your car. Yeah, slipping in the shower. Yeah, the world is a terrifying place. Terribly I almost think dangerous. that this Bermuda Triangle myth is our way of responding to that, of us being like, "Man, the chaotic world is so scary." In some ways, a ghost story like the Bermuda Triangle goes some way almost to make it a little bit less scary. Are we being too dismissive, Nathan? Are we just sort of like, are we the rationalists of the 1950s who are like, you know what, you just saw Venus, you know, or a weather balloon, like stop right. it. And are, we, thereby, are, are, are we weather ballooning the Bermuda Triangle? Exactly. And thereby missing uh, what, you know, some phenomenon that might be like really happening. Like you, you did mention some non-alien slash non-wormhole kind of theories like methane gas or uh, a giant squid. I mean, as I said earlier, there these are some of the deepest parts of the ocean, and the ocean is relatively unexplored. Um, we know, apparently, I'm just parroting stuff here, apparently we know more about the dark side of the moon and about um, the surface of Venus than we do about some of these areas of the ocean. Are we short-circuiting an opportunity to understand something that is as yet unknown because, you know, we're just like, 
Dudes got lost. Mutinies happen. Nothing to see here. Well, I'll say this. In order maybe to prevent us from, from, from committing that error, perhaps we should do a podcast episode on the lost continent of Atlantis. Okay. I like that. All right. So that's what we'll do then. Back to the ocean. Ha, 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 ha.